Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. There are lots and lots of layers to this. And so I want to unpack this question together this morning, really because the person who asked this question to Jesus 2,000 years ago could very well have asked this question of Jesus today. This is a question that is still uh, on, uh, on our hearts and minds because salvation is at the heart of who, of who we are as Christians. And, uh, and its implications have implications for today and for eternity. What is the nature of being saved? And see, the problem is this word saved has a lot of cultural baggage now, too, particularly here in the South, right? There are signs on the side of the road that says, Jesus saves. That's great, but from what? And how? It's still very much in our vernacular to be, to be asked, are you saved? Or when were you saved? On one end of the spectrum, it's kind of just, it's become sort of a cultural thing that's, that's basically asking, do you go to church? It's kind of, it's just sort of fluffy. It's just sort of out there. I don't even know exactly what that means, but yeah, I guess so, because... Yeah, I go to church. Um, on the other hand, it's become tied in with, uh, with a very, uh, very directed moralism, right? Like, have you been saved? And you kind of have to say it squinty-eyed and sort of like, like this, right? And, uh, because, because the implication is, if you haven't, then you're one of them, right? I mean, there's, 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 a, there's not a lot of joy in the word saved, because of the cultural baggage that it has. So I want to start deconstructing some of this, because I, I, when we actually look into the Scripture itself, the word saved is used quite differently than the way it is oftentimes used in our culture today. So it would be a good idea, if being saved is at the heart of who we are as Christians, to know exactly what the Bible says about what being saved is is. Oftentimes we think of the word saved as just something that's going to happen uh, in the future sometime later on. And our faith becomes something that's sort of, uh, yeah, Jesus did good things a long time ago, and then, uh, and then way later on when the decision is, are you going to take the ladder or the slide, um, that we're going to take the ladder and go up rather than slide down. We've <laughs> We've gone with Shrek and shoots and ladders this morning. Um, it's early. We'll get more intellectual as it moves along. Okay. I mean, that, that, we, think, that we think that saved is something that's, that's, that's later, later on. And so the middle of our faith here becomes sort of, I don't know, uh, yeah, Jesus did good things then, something good's going to happen then, I guess I'm just kind of waiting it out in between. And so that's where we get into a lot of the, the Christian faith inspiration stuff, right? Like if you want to buy a Bible at Walmart, you go to the inspiration section. Um, a lot of the Bible's not very inspiring. It's quite scary. Did you hear the readings from today? Um, <laughs> that's not great, uh, great inspiring stuff that just makes you want to go win a football game or something, right? Um, it makes you tremble in fear. So, so let's, let's, let's look at this here in the, the word saved in the context of the scripture. So we'll start with a vocabulary lesson. 
Um, saved, it's linked with the idea of salvation, and it means redemption or deliverance. To be taken from a bad situation and to be brought into a good situation. And the idea of being saved means that, that you didn't do that yourself. Like, you can't, you can't really save yourself. You can't, I mean, if you've ever seen any movie ever, it's usually about somebody being saved, right? And somebody has to come and do the saving of the person who is in, uh, who is in peril, right? If the movie's about you crawling up out of the hole that you're in, you're not being saved then. You're kind of, I don't know, escaping but the idea of being saved means that someone has come in or is coming for you because you're valued and because you're wanted and because you're in an awful situation and someone needs to come and remove you from that. So the idea of being saved is redemption or deliverance, to be taken from a harmful situation and brought to a place of safety and peace and wholeness, like every Liam Neeson movie ever. Um, is, uh, is basically what that comes down to. So uh, Jesus even said that in Luke, in Luke 19, he even says that his job, that the, that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That's what he's here for. That's the whole purpose of Jesus, to seek and save the lost. All right, so how was the word saved then used in the New Testament? First is this, and we put this up on the screen for you. First... Um, <coughs> The, uh, the word saved is used in three tenses, past, present, and future. So we'll start with the past. First, salvation is seen as a past event, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Okay? We have been saved, something that happened in the past, from the penalty of sin, and we call this justification. Okay, So that the, the way this, this term is used in verses like Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You have been. It's something that's, that's in the past because Scripture teaches us that there is a penalty for sin. Right? Uh, and and it's, this is important to talk about because if we just said that being saved is being removed from an awful situation, it's important to know what the awful situation is that requires saving. And the more awful the situation, the bigger the saving event. Right? Uh, that uh, uh, that if, uh, if you watch... If you watch any of the, the hospital shows on TV, right? It all started with ER and now there's like... 14 of them, right? Um, no one comes in like, got a splinter, right? And everybody goes, bring the tweezers, and they throw them down and pull the tweezers, because you're like, what? It's a splinter. But they come in, and they're, they're gushing with blood, and they go, bring the rib spreader, you know, and to, to have to pull that open, and, and say, because it's something bigger that needs to be saved from. So we need to talk about sin because we need to talk about, is being saved really that important? And, and, and if being saved is important and it took to be saved, it took God coming to earth to die on a cross, then the peril that we're in must be pretty great because the saving event had to be very significant. So we, we have this, this uh, book, this um, tool within the church that's called the Catechism. And the Catechism is, if you've never read the Catechism, I encourage you to. Um, there are probably copies of it around here. Talk to Drew. He can get you one. And, um, 
it's called in the ACNA, in the Anglican Church in North America, our church, it's called To Be a Christian is the name of our catechism. And what it is, it's just a list of a whole bunch of questions and answers about the faith. Uh, it's really helpful uh, to learn and grow. We even have catechism classes here at Redeemer that you should be a part of. But so the catechism says this. The first question is, how does sin affect you? And it says this, sin alienates me from God, my neighbor, God's good creation, and myself. That's a lot of alienation. From God, my neighbor, God's good creation, and myself. I am hopeless, guilty, lost, helpless, and walking in the way of death. Um, clearly, that's something that we want to be saved from. Before we can, before we can want to be saved or, or, um, or value the idea of being saved, we have to sit in this for a minute, that the Scripture is clear that everyone has sinned and that sin brings alienation from God and from one another and God's good creation, and ourselves. And that there's, that there's ultimately a penalty for sin that that alienation continues. So when we start talking about hell, I know we don't like to talk about hell, but the heart of what hell is, is alienation from God. That's what that is. And so when we go, I don't like, I don't like the idea of God, being, uh, of God sending people to hell. If, if people don't want to know God, if they don't want to be with him, if they're alienated from him here, hell is the continuation of that. It's, it's the continuation of the reality of what, they are, of what they know now. Now, the catechism also says this, what is the way of death? The way of death is life empty of God's love and life-giving Holy Spirit controlled by things that cannot bring me eternal joy, but that lead only to darkness, misery, and eternal condemnation. Again, a description of a horrible situation that we are all in from birth. The, these, these are important things for us to recognize. The, the, the not as good news of what we understand the world to be through the lens of Christianity and through the truth of Christ. That we are born sinners. We're not, it's, we don't, we're not, it's not a curve like, like you're going to get into heaven by default unless you mess it up. But that we are born sinners separated from God because of the sins of Adam and Eve and those who, have, who are before us and the sin nature that we have. Now, slow down before you push back against this, before you tighten your arms too much across your, uh, your chest and sort of glare at me. Um, yeah, slow down, because, because you want there to be a penalty for sin. You want there to be a penalty for sin. And if you're like, no, no, I don't. You act, yes, you do. Because you, you want a God who, who values humanity, who values uh, his, his own glory, who values goodness, who values righteousness enough to want to push back and have even wrath against those who would alienate you from God and from themselves and from your neighbor and God's good creation. So major sins like rapists and murderers and thieves, we go, yes, get them, God, right? We want there to be a penalty for that. There should be a penalty for that. It's just and right. When folks would hurt other people and themselves and creation and, and, and God, there should be a penalty for that. 
Our problem with, with, with wrath or a penalty from God is that it doesn't just apply to the big sins of being a rapist and a murderer and a thief. It also applies to things like lying and gossip and laziness and jealousy and things that all of us do. It's much better to think, yes, God, punish those people over there. Not, I deserve that punishment too. Because in the scripture, there, is no, there are no good people in the scripture. There are perfect and imperfect. Righteous and unrighteous. That's it. And none of us are righteous. So all of us are under the penalty of God. That's the scary part. So we want a just God. We want there to be a penalty for sin. But we also, because we're also in that camp, we want a merciful God. A God who is full of mercy. I've heard it said that we oftentimes want justice for everyone else and mercy for ourselves. So you want a merciful God, a God who recognizes our helplessness and is willing to rescue, to save us. And the good news of the gospel is that penalty has been paid, has been dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why it's the center symbol of what Christianity uh, believes. Because at the cross, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. And that's why it's such a great and glorious news. When we sit for a minute in the depths of sin and the penalty and the harshness of that and the darkness that it brings and we see the conflict that sin has caused all around us and we, and we realize that we're helpless to save ourselves from that and then when we look to the east at the dawning of the third day, there's hope and there's a Savior who has come in the midst of our darkness to heal, to forgive, to renew, to save. And that happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. He accomplished the paying for our sins on the cross and saved us from the doom that our sins have merited us 2,000 years ago on the cross. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. And so if someone asks you, when were you saved? 2,000 years ago on a cross. Now, we have to take part in that, though. Right? We have to, we have to, Jesus has opened the door for salvation and then calls us to repent and believe. To repent, to repent means to turn away from, to turn away from those things of sin that we have put our faith in and to turn towards him and to be able to say, no, I want, I want what you offer. I, I believe that your way is the true way of life. To repent and to believe, to believe in Christ as our, as our Savior, to, to, to connect ourselves with Him, to put our affections towards Him, to put our hope in Him, to trust Him. That's what belief is about. So the second way that the New Testament uses the word saved is as a present and ongoing experience. All right, so we'll throw this on the screen for you too. New Testament says, we 
are being saved from the power of sin. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. In other words, sin is still in my life. We don't, we don't repent and believe and all of a sudden become perfect. Sorry for my Methodist friends. Um, that's not how that works. Um, so, um, but sin is still here, but it's on its way out. Sin is on its way out of our lives. We call this sanctification. So justification, you have been saved from the, from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, you are being saved from the power of sin in your life. And this should be the present experience of the Christian. It should be where we are recognizing sin in our lives as we know God's word, as we read God's word, as the Holy Spirit lives within us to, uh, to put God's word into our heart, as we, as we recognize the results of sin in the world and we work to correct that in areas of justice, where, where we see others who are hurting because of the presence of sin in the world and we help to heal and to give hope. And where we, through the power of God in his presence within us, are becoming more like Christ. This should be the process that we are a part of. This is our present reality of being saved. Look at Titus chapter 2. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, let me pause there for a second, because we say, wait, did you say everybody? Does this say all people? Well, yes, because he gave the opportunity for all people, but, but you have to come and be a part of that through redemption and belief. Just like the famous Christian verse, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that's everybody, that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe would not die but would have eternal life. So Jesus died for everyone. But he's calling us to repent and believe to receive the benefits of the salvation that he offers. Okay, so for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then look at this process that he starts to outline, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So if you heard me read this, when I read, he's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And you thought, that sounds awful. <laughs> that sounds boring. That's the grip of sin that is still within us. C.S. Lewis said um, that the greatest gift that, or the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was to try to teach that heaven would be boring. That somehow righteousness is less exciting and less passionate and less joyful than unrighteousness. And, and everything in our lives outside of the word of God is teaching us that to be true is trying to tell you that there are so many other things that are unrighteous that actually bring more joy and more life than God does. And what Paul is saying here in Titus is he's saying we're in the process of being saved. We're being trained to, to recognize, oh, 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 no, no, I'm believing, I'm believing a lie. 
and that there is something greater and something more beautiful and something that has more passion and something that has more joy. And that's sanctification. It's a process. We're all in it if we belong to Christ. That there are those who are being saved. And the converse of that is that there are those who are being lost. So what he's saying here, too, is that there is effort and intentionality involved in this life. As, as, uh, as, uh, as Protestant Christians, as people who... Uh, who follow the teachings of the Reformation in the Christian church. We're so worried about saying that there's effort involved in our faith because we're like, well, if we put effort, then that means we're, we are, we're earning stuff. And it's not then just by the grace of God. No, no, calm down. No one's telling you that you're earning your salvation, but you are participating in it. Effort does not mean earning. They're, they're, they're not the same thing. And so you should be participating in your faith. There should be passion, devotion, service, loving in community. This shouldn't be something that's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. We got to do that church thing in the morning. It should dominate your week. And I don't just mean you have to be really busy with church stuff. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that your love and passion for Christ should grow so that it is overwhelming every part of your week. And that's the process of sanctification. I'm not there yet. And we all won't get there until we get to the next way that the New Testament uses the word saved. The third way that the New Testament used the word saved. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. And one day, the great Christian hope is that you will be saved from the very presence of sin. That, that the, the glorious hope of Christians is that one day Christ is going to return to make all things new, to complete that process of sanctification where, where his people are made holy, where we are made like him, where we will be in his presence fully. The great passage that was read today from Hebrews that says, you come, you come to a city of God with a joyous company of angels singing. The pictures of, of the future of Christianity um, and the future of the world that Christians will live into, it says in the scripture, it's, it's used the image of a feast. There's always food involved, right? Can I get an amen, right? Now, there's always food that's involved. There's always a feast because it's like, I mean, it's like a really quality golden corral, right? I mean, there's just, there's just food everywhere. Hey, it's a redeemed golden corral, right? It's saved. So there's food everywhere, and there's people, and we're sitting, and we're talking, and we're enjoying that community together. That's the picture of the glorious hope of Christians, that one day, that where this is all headed is actually a place where, where God wins, and where joy wins, and where love wins, and where peace is everywhere. No matter the current situation that we are in in any country at any given time in the world, we know that the great trajectory of history is that God wins when Christ returns. And as we live in light of that, our, that affects our lives now. We will be saved from the presence of sin and we call that glorification, justification, sanctification, glorification. 
And this is our great hope. Look, look back at the verse from Titus chapter 2 again. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, that's justification, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live uh, self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, sanctification, while we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Glorification. It's all three of these things. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. That's what the word saved means. It's bigger and greater than any billboard could ever communicate. It's greater than just a moment. When were you saved? It's bigger than that. Our lives as Christians are not, Jesus did great stuff a long time ago. Heaven's going to be good in the future. And in the meantime, we're waiting it out and we're inspired. It's much greater than that. Jesus died on the cross and sent his Holy Spirit and promised his coming again for the fullness of salvation and wholeness. This is what we're called to as Christians. And if you are in this room and you are not a Christian, this is what the Lord Jesus is right now, through these words, calling you to, to a place of repentance and belief to a place of entering into this great people and this great narrative and into this great hope. And what it means is letting go of the other stuff that is sinful and leading you into a place that leads actually to darkness and death. Let go of those things, repent from those things, and say, I believe that Jesus is here to bring forgiveness and change and new life and that his words are the truth. So let's get back to the question then this person asked. Luke 13, 23. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? They didn't ask about the nature of what it means to be saved. They asked about quantity. How many people are going to be there? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, let me tell you how many people are going to be there. He looks at the person and then around at the crowd and he says, strive to enter the narrow door. It, he moves it from Will those who are saved be few to will those who are saved be you? He starts saying, instead of worrying about everyone else, you worry about you. Parents, have you said this to your children a thousand times? <laughs> it is not what, why is it that when I tell you that your brother's doing this, that you have to go, well, am I doing that? I mean, it is not, you worry about you. Strive to enter the narrow door. There is effort and intentionality in striving. He doesn't say drunkenly stumble lazily into the narrow door. He says strive. And if it's a narrow door, that means you've got to be alert and looking for it. And that means you have to, you have to make some, 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 uh, some effort to, to find it and to pursue it. And if you've got big shoulders, you've got to turn sideways, right? I mean, to get in the narrow door. He calls us to strive, not to earn our salvation, but to know the giver of salvation. Watch what he says here. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you will begin to stand outside and to knock at the door and say, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, but, but, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now, now, again, that can make us feel a little queasy, like a little, well, I don't, I, I don't know if I like that or not. But think about this. There's a feast inside the door. There's a master of the house. 
And so who is he letting in? What are the requirements to get into the house where the feast is? To know the host, right? The people he left outside, he said, I don't know you. And they start spouting out all their accomplishments. No, but we've done all this stuff. Like, look, you ate, um, we ate and drank in your presence. We ate near you? What? You taught in our streets. But what did you do? You, apparently, these people didn't eat with him, and they didn't listen necessarily to his teaching, but they were like, oh, you were around, and so we figured we would just kind of get caught up in that river and sucked into the door. And he's like, I didn't know you. What he's calling us to is to know the host. And so when, he comes, when you come to the door, he says, welcome, my friend. Come in. And this is what repentance and belief is about. There, there is an urgency here because one day that door will be shut. One day that door will be shut. And so there is an urgency for us to know the host now. The host, too, is the giver of life. And he ends his discourse on this, Jesus, with these last words in verse 28. In that place there will be weeping of gnashing of teeth outside the door. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves were cast out. All of the witnesses who had begged you and begged you and begged you to repent and believe and know this good news, they're all inside. And then you are outside. Remember, you want a God who has no place for sin and evil. He lets people in who knows him, who loves him, who pursues him. And those inside the door, this is what it sounds like. Verse 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some who are first will be last. The great joyous picture when salvation has run its course when it has come to its telos, its ending, that we are all together at this great feast. And who is the host? You will recline at table in the kingdom of God. This table that we come to here is a foretaste of the kingdom of God, of the wedding supper of the Lamb. That one day, this, this for us is, is, a, is a participation now, and it's, an, it's a promise of a future table that is much longer and much broader and much wider. And he who will break the bread and pass the cup is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus himself as the celebrant at the table. So what do we do with this? The application of this is simple. Repent and believe. Come to know this great and glorious invitation that the call to repent and believe is not one that is said by God with his arms crossed and shaking his finger at you and going, get yourself right and then maybe you can come in. It's an invitation. It's an open-armed begging, entreating. Come to the feast. Come to know the host. Come to know this joy. Come to know this forgiveness. Come to know this hope. And let, let you rest fully on the confidence of what Jesus has done in the past to save you from the penalty of sin that he's present now in his Holy Spirit as he is healing you from the power of sin in your life and look with hope and glory and expectation and excitement that one day glorification will happen when Christ returns and he will save you from the very presence of sin itself. This is what we believe as Christians. And if you're a Christian, live into it. 
Strive to enter the narrow door. And if you're not, we beg you, know this great life that we know. Know this Jesus that we know. Let him come and save you. Pray with me.